Welcome to Inside the Hive. We are back again. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here, of course, with Joe Hagen, my, my lovely trusted co-host. I feel good being trusted. That's we, nice. You are. You know what's really nice? It's just the two of us today, and I feel like it's so nice to just have us time. You have to touch home base once in a while. Agreed. You know? It's QT. Remember who you are. I agree. We've had such a great run of guests recently, and we have so many great things coming up. But I felt like, I think both of us felt like, this is a week to just stop and take stock of what's happening with us, what's on our brains. And both of us independently, I'm speaking for you because we spoke about this. You have liberty to speak on my behalf. Thank you. Both of us have felt like... For the first week, because impeachment's in the rear view now, and we are now past, I think it's 37 days of the Biden administration today, everything feels like we are starting to be able to focus on the kinds of things that we, for many, many years, were able to focus on, but over the last four years, were unable to give any kind of attention. And it feels both like a blessing and kind of boring. And it's beautiful in its boringness. You know how I know that what you're saying is correct? How? One of the top pressing stories of the nation that is capturing the imagination of certainly myself, but lots of people I know, is the Mr. Potato Head controversy. That is the news of the day. On uh, Here on Thursday afternoon, the thing that is all over my Twitter feed is Mr. Potato Head now becoming just Potato Head? Potato Head. When the original toy launched, wasn't it just like eyes and a nose that you were to stick into an actual potato? Oh, you know, an actual potato? I don't know about that. Well, I I saw someone say that. Of course, that's how it started. Well, sure, 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 sure. I don't know that that's true. I love it it if it were to be true. Can you imagine two years ago, 18 months ago, having the time to care about what gender a plastic toy was being marketed as. What a delight that is. Well, it's funny. I've been thinking recently, some clever person is going to go back over the last four years and just find all the stories that never made it above the fold because (sighs) of the overpowering news cycles we were in. And uh, all kinds of things were flowing underground that nobody paid attention to. It's true. You know. The world probably changed in a million ways we don't even know about. Well, we should, I mean, maybe that's a project for the two of us to do. How many times over the last, like, stretch have we heard the phrase, like, in any other administration, this would have been, you know, A1 news. And now those things are. And it's it's kind of like everything feels low stakes, even though they're not. These are big, major, consequential things, but they don't have the feel of that because we've been living in a constant five-alarm fire. And right. I, I mean, it kind of, it's just every day kind of just feels mellow, even though big things are happening. We're living in a pandemic. We're dealing with so many things on Capitol Hill right now. The world is is upside down, but it kind of feels under control. I just watched uh, President Biden gave a speech because they reached the 50 million vaccine mark 
on the 37th day and they said that they're ahead of schedule and they're going to mark every 50, 50 million vaccines delivered. And I just get the sense for the first time in this whole pandemic process that like things are under control and not only are they under control, and obviously this is going to be a peak and valley situation and things could get worse than they are today and they will get worse than they are today. And hopefully eventually they will get better uh, and will continue to get better. But it felt really nice to have an administration that was doing things that benefited the greater good, having people getting vaccinated on television, having someone mark all these milestones. It felt like, okay, there are people in charge who are doing things that don't benefit them personally, though, of course, it's a good thing for this administration to be out there touting that they're ahead of schedule. But I don't know. I just feel like we're so used to someone whose moods and own personal ego boosts were the thing that ruled the day rather than public good. And that, to me, is the greatest signifier of where we are today versus where we were two months ago. Well, and another aspect of this is this whole confirmation process uh, around Neera Tandon um, Mm. for the role of budget director. And, you know, she's been she's come under fire and there's some question about her confirmation because of what The Times calls her unstrategically belligerent in social media posts. And so that's hilarious for a number of reasons. Can you be strategically (laughs) belligerent? Well, the entire right wing of the country uh, was strategically belligerent for the last four years and confirmed every single person that they had, uh, all of whom were crazy partisans, most of whom are on Twitter um, saying belligerent things. So, you know, as soon as the Democrats come in, they are the most kind of uh, they use their own value systems against themselves constantly. And uh, in this case. Uh, my interpretation of what's going on here, by the way, is first of all, you have Joe Manchin, who's now like a kingmaker from West Virginia because he's the centrist and he can play both sides. But I, I'm taking a little bit of optimism out of this whole thing that I find interesting, oh. which is you have these strange reverse roles here where Joe Manchin is saying, I'm not going to vote for it, but Mitt Romney is saying, I might vote for it. And Lisa Murkowski is hanging out there from Alaska. She might vote for it. And if you had reverse party confirmation, you'd know we were in a new world. It's interesting. That is that is a very good point. Let me work something out with you in real time because I don't know where I fall and maybe just talking through it will help me. So mm-hmm. there, are, there are very specific examples of people that say a Joe Manchin voted to confirm in the last administration. And those people had said... I, I, I don't know, strategically, unstrategically belligerent things and, and hyper-partisan things. I think Rick Grinnell is a perfect example who became an ambassador. Rick Grinnell spent years bashing women and liberal people he perceived to be liberal opponents to him uh, on Twitter. Like there was just such a deep history of the terrible things he would say about women to women, about other politicians And he skated through without any problem. I believe Joe Manchin voted for his confirmation. No doubt. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, who was a budget director in the Trump administration, I think he referred to himself as a right-wing nut or white right-wing nut job, something like that. Uh, Not only did he hold the job at OMB, but he he held another 
very important position in the Trump administration, doing two jobs at once, which was unheard of. And he was able to get confirmed. So it's hard to refer to yourself as a right-wing nut job and then not hold the banner as, as someone who is partisan, who has said partisan things publicly. Initially, I had felt like, okay, there is a very simple through line between a male getting confirmed after saying very, very, very hyper-partisan thing and a woman saying very partisan things on Twitter and not getting confirmed. That seems like an obvious through line there and something that is worth noting. But then I started thinking, well, maybe it has nothing to do with whether it's a man or a woman. Maybe it's just Trump, right? That like everyone suspended all sense of decency and normal when he was in office and anything tied to him was not held to any kind of standard. Like everyone just gave up standards because they had already let so much go in order to elect him. And now all of a sudden Joe Biden's in there and standards are back. I don't know. Well, it's always this way with the Democrats. They only make standards count when it comes to the Democrats. And on the the whole kind of um, essence of the modern GOP is that they abide by no rules. They don't have to wear masks. They don't have to stay at home. They don't have to socially distance. They don't have to, you know, not use language that uh, is unhurtful. You know, they can do whatever they want. And that was the whole Trump liberation movement, right? It's true. And so consequently, now we're trying to reestablish ethics, (laughs) morality, values, norms, what people call norms. And as a result, who, who suffers from that? It's always going to be the Democrats, and it's always been thus, frankly, you know, for a long time. I agree. And look, I'm all for norms and standards and for people talking in a way that feels respectful and elevated to the offices that they're going to hold. Those are good things. I hope that we all continue to hold elected officials or appointed officials or nominated officials to to those standards the same way that we would expect our teachers and our children and our loved ones to talk. I think that that's, everyone should be held to those standards, but you can't have half the people held to those standards and half the people not held to those standards. The thing that- Well, just to bring it- Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, just to bring it back to Mr. Potato Head. As, as we should. Potato Head to you and yeah. me, is, you know, immediately Ted Cruz jumps on Ugh. this because the right has turned any kind of, anything they perceive as virtue signaling on the left- as a, you know, a gleeful chance to dance upon the heads of Democrats, it's right? true. Well, but that's that's the fault line there between the left wanting to maintain a certain value system. And yes, it has its own vices and extremes, you know, uh, that virtue signaling and everything. But the right constantly wins off throwing off the shackles of decency, and that's what's so ironic about this near attendant thing is like, you know, oh, <laughs> suddenly they care about tweets that somebody did. That's crazy. Well, it's also like for years, Republicans were saying, you know, they would be interviewed by, by reporters in Capitol Hill and they would ask them about the President Trump's tweets. And then so they would say, oh, I didn't see the tweet. I haven't I haven't read the tweet yet. Now, all of a sudden, they're reading years back on yeah. Twitter. That feels very convenient to me. I thought about this a lot during impeachment, right? Because so many Republicans who I talked to over the last four years, when I would say, like, why are they 
sticking by Trump? Why are they doing this? And the response that I would get back is judges and tax reform, right? And that that was plausible to me at the time. That felt very Republican and very strategic and uh, yes, amoral, but there was a purpose behind it and it was something that they philosophically believed in. It didn't make it right, but it was at least a, an explanation that I could plausibly buy. And then you had Republicans not vote to convict Trump. And that explanation became instant bullshit to me because they got their judges, they got tax reform, and they still stuck by them. Like, it is not, there is no Republican moral justification for Trump. It is just political power survival. And I think that that's what the Republican Party stands for now. And that's what we're starting to see. And Mm -hmm. we're continuing to see. And these double standards don't have an ideological root to them. They have this craven need Mm -hmm. to stay in power. and, And they see President Trump as the way forward for them. And that brings us to something that I wanted to talk about today. You know, there were polls out this week that show that President Trump still has such a strong holds on the Republican Party. And let me just read read two things to you. So earlier this week, uh, there was a poll from R Street Institute, a free market group, and it found that two-thirds of the Republican Party say that Republicans view the last election as invalid. 67% of Republicans have that viewpoint compared to 23% of Republicans who did not say, who said that this was a valid election. And a morning consult poll released last week said that among Republican voters, 59% said they wanted Trump to play a prominent role in their party, which is up 18 points from a poll that was taken the period before. So Trump may be out of office. He may be off Twitter. But it is very clear, both from the actions that Republicans who are in office are taking and from these kinds of polls, that he is, he may be physically gone, but he has not forgotten. Well, I take, I have take away two things from that. One is that the politicians in the GOP Congress are beholden to the damage, the misinformation damage that Trump did Mm. to their base. You know, he controlled them through all the ways we know, through a cult of personality, through being the maniac that he is. And the second thing I take away from it is that though people would not admit this in polls, I imagine, that a lot of them were okay with this January 6th coup. That they don't see a reason to tie that to Trump, even though they probably agree with all those people who were invading the Capitol that day, that they have sympathies with them. And so what we're dealing with is a rogue party, you know, uh, within what used to be called the Republican yeah. Party. You know, the Republican Party is like a host body that has been completely overtaken by a virus of its own kind. You're totally right. You're completely right. And what is frightening is there's no path back, right? It is very hard. I mean, you've talked to a cult deprogrammer, And it is very difficult to deprogram this, especially when you have people like Ted Cruz who aren't necessarily, they're not outwardly spouting QAnon conspiracy theories. But this, the rhetoric of, you know, just pouncing on the the 
potato head thing, for example, it's just all sows anger. It sows discord. It sows everything has gone too far away from the America that we know, the America that, that got me my factory job, that takes care of people in middle America. And just those little... They're like very quiet dog whistles, but they are dog whistles. And they all harken back to the new thing of like, you white America may not be the the majority power holders anymore. And that is very scary. And the jobs that you knew that were safe and secure are not there anymore. And they're certainly not safe and secure. And those little things of we've gone too far, we're you know, we're down a road, anyone could be canceled at any moment. And, and some of these, these things are worth talking about. And you and I are going to spend a lot of time talking about, about them in the coming weeks and months, but everything just continues down a direction where people are scared and angry and want to get back to this old version of America that does not exist anymore. And that will continue to really spread some scary, dangerous things and, and will continue us down a path that will lead to someone who is like a Donald Trump coming up a- and having success in the Republican Party. Well, what they did was they successfully glued that economic anxiety you're talking about to a revolt against diversity and the vision of the country as a genuine multicultural pluralistic society, right? Which is not a new phenomenon. This is something that has happened no. for no, that's, since America existed, right? The the fear since of America the other. America existed, right? Well, that's what you know. Even the book, uh, you know, when I had Rick Perlstein on here yes. talking about Reaganland, it's like it's it was back then too. The seeds of it, and a lot of it comes out of the post sixties, you know, uh, cultural divisions that we all know about, right? Of and it's hard to tell what kind of supersized the whole thing. You know, we got everything got kind of uh, weaponized in, in a different way in the last 10 to 20 years. And I think there's a lot of books that are going to be written about it and a lot of books to be written about it. I have a friend, a reporter, a friend who's been working on a book, I assume it's coming out later this year, just uh, that tells the history of the year 2000, oh, cool. 1999 to 2000. I mean, the, the, um, the 2000 election right, where we first saw this intense division and how the Supreme Court had to adjudicate an election. It was like an unbelievable Mm. thing at the time, a shocking thing, you know. And then 9-11 and this cascade of things, and I always point to the 2008 implosion of the economy as really where there was a huge fissure in our society. I think that a lot of this anger and fear began to emanate out of that. You had these Alex Joneses that would came along and the kind of uh, misinformation of the internet. All the things we know and now we arrive here, and it's been kind of permanently built into this brand, this Trump thing. And what we have to turn to, I mean, the only kind of hope is that it will fade over time as people lose interest. But that's, as you pointed out like two episodes ago, don't get too comfortable because Trump's going to come back, right? He's going to find a new outlet. He's going to find a new way to make noise. And then he's going to regenerate and reanimate. You're talking about 67% of Republicans view the last election as invalid, and you assume those are all Trump supporters. Uh, so imagine what that number turns into when Trump comes back and starts feeding them, you know, uh, red meat. It's true.
you know, we're, we're, we started this episode talking about the kind of new boring normal. The hope is that maybe yeah. people like that. Will like that. At the end of the day, Lee will ask me like, what happened today? And I'm like, literally nothing. Like yes. just, I have nothing mm-hmm. to report to you. And yeah. What a beautiful thing. I There's never been a time where I would have been able to say that over the last four years. Like there have been mm-hmm. too many things for us to possibly keep up with. And, and so many big stories slipped through the cracks for so long. And I'm just so grateful to have the time to, to be able to talk about them. One of those stories happens to be minimum wage. And this week, Costco, which is a gigantic retailer, not only in the size of its stores and the size of its... Uh, quantities of things that they sell, but but a very, very, very large retailer announced today that they will be raising their minimum wage to $16 an hour. This isn't like something that we talk about that much on Inside the Hive, probably because of the news cycle, but also it's not the minimum wage is not the sexiest story in the world. And we're all about keeping things sexy it on is Inside to the some Hive. People. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I will say that as a very young reporter, I was a retail reporter at CNN. And Being a retail reporter at CNN means you're covering the gigantic retail chains like a Costco, like a Walmart. Walmart is obviously the the biggest retailer in the world. It is actually, I don't know if this is still the case. I would imagine it is. When I was covering it, Walmart was the biggest employer in the world, second only in the U.S. to the U.S. government. And when I started covering retail, the fight for 15, the the $15 minimum wage fight had just begun as as an actual campaign. And... I don't know if that was in 2012 or 2013 or 2014, but to think that like, that was my whole world. That was the entire sphere that I covered and no progress has really been made until now because since 2016, since 2015, no one's been able to focus on it. And a lot of times an issue like that doesn't really get pushed forward until you have the ability for media to, to cover it and scrutinize it. And I feel like I know Congress is really taking up the issue. We, we see at the, the press briefings almost every day with uh, Jen Psaki that she is asked about what the Biden administration supports in terms of raising the minimum wage and representatives on Capitol Hill are asked this every day. So obviously it's something that in Congress and in Washington broadly people are focusing on, but I think the press now has the ability to focus on it too. And it's, it is the major issue that is facing most of this country that our minimum wage is still what it is. It has not changed since I started covering right. it. And before that, it hadn't changed in many, many years also. I think it's just such a tremendous thing. It's sad to me that it's taking a private company like Costco to raise the bar. Right. Because $15 an hour in this stimulus uh, package that they're putting together is like possibly on the chopping block, right? I mean, they haven't been able to power that through. There's all this resistance here and there. I think Joe Manchin may actually be one of the resistors to $15 an hour, which I find very strange. It's, uh, it's so fascinating. Like, what's interesting to me is, you know, the Democrats came in really hot on this topic, rightly so. They also came in saying, immediately, we're going to pass a bill that allows for $2,000 checks for people in this economic stimulus. And we are now 37 days into this new administration and neither of those things have happened. And I think obviously if we compare things to how the last administration, the last Congress handled things, we are much better off. But I don't think it's fair to give people a pass because they're better than Trump, right? Lawmakers 
should still keep their promises. Mm -hmm. And even though many people in this country are happy that Democrats are in the majority now, or at least tied in the Senate, they have to do what they said they're going to do. Right. And you still have to hold them to their promises. Politicians Mm -hmm. are politicians. And if they're, if they're getting elected and garnering votes based on very specific promises and timelines, if they don't meet those promises and they don't meet those timelines, they should be held accountable for that. And these are, these are not little promises for their district. These are things that matter to the majority of Americans that will come up time and time again in every election. And if Democrats want to hold their seats, these are the promises they need to keep. Well, we have to look to the Democratic leadership to whip these votes. I mean, they have to get these votes together, especially because the greater cause here is not having the tide prematurely roll back on Biden just as he's getting out of the gate with, uh, you know, repairing the breach, right? And the breach is that people are suffering in this country because of the pandemic and the economic decline. I agree with you 100% about the about the minimum wage. And it's one that's one I've been following closely, kind of a little bit alarmed. I, I thought it was a sure thing for a while there. Now it's not. But and I guess that's hopeful to think that private enterprise could, you know, try to light the way on this. But here's the thing. Having covered these companies for so long, they're not going to lead the way here, right? They're going to they're going to take steps that are meaningful. Like this step is a very, very meaningful step. And I don't want to diminish Costco. Mm-hmm. Walmart's minimum wage, Walmart, the biggest retailer is, is just $11 an hour. That's a big difference. And, you know, the wages are one thing, but what happens when a company, oftentimes what happens when a company raises its minimum wages is they cut hours, right? So their hourly wages in a press release may say one thing, but how that's reflected in a, in an employee's paycheck is another thing. Mm -hmm. I used to talked to so many retail workers and fast food workers who were part of this fight for 15. And what they would say is, okay, they raised our wage, but I went from being a full-time worker to a part-time worker, which not only means that the money I'm making per week gets cut, but I am no longer getting benefits, right? I'm no longer qualifying for sick days. I'm no longer getting holidays off. And those things are really, really important. And so you just have to, like, if you don't have the federal government stepping in or state governments or or a, a bigger body that is not making money off of or losing money off of these decisions, you're going to have it reflected in people's paychecks in some way or another. And that's why it's so important to have a federal standard here where people are taken care of and the incentive is not the bottom line. One way to kind of get a, a, a visceral feeling for what this minimum wage thing means, is having a look at this new movie, Nomadland. Oh, I haven't seen it. Okay, I saw it. And um, I have all kinds of film critical ideas about it, but it is a very visceral look at all these basically, you know, mobile workers at the Amazon factory. You know, it's like, this is the Amazon lifestyle, is that people are working, you know, they don't have any guarantee. It's seasonal often. You know, there's just it just uh, underlines the fact and and what it looks like to people who may not know what it looks like not to have a safety net in the country. You know what it looks like to not have a high minimum wage that can support people who are at the lower end of the working class spectrum. 
my personal feeling about that movie was Francis McDormand's amazing. Always. And uh, my feelings, I, w- I wish that it had been a documentary. Mm. I actually met the author of that book a couple of years ago, and she told me all about it, uh, the book that it was based on, No Man Land. And I was very fascinated with just the factual reality of it, right? And, um, and the movie has a realism to it that makes you feel it. But uh, I would like to see, at least as a, you know, on top of that, I'd like to see a, a documentary about the, that world. Although it's hard to get inside somebody's world uh, with a documentary sometimes, and obviously they chose to do it this way. But yeah, yeah, check it out. Of course, you'll check it out because it's got to get nominated for like a however many Academy Awards. I have Awards. to but, say, um, I'm having. We just we were just talking to a friend who's watched. He's a big movie buff. He also loves this podcast. So, hello, Phil. Oh, good. Hello. Um, and he <laughs> was saying he was talking me through all the movies he's been watching in quarantine. We really have not watched that many movies and I'm, I'm like embarrassed about it. We, I, I can really only think of maybe like three movies we've watched. I'm sure we've watched more than that. I think we watched Father of the Bride. We always watch When Harry Met Sally on New Year's Eve and yeah. we watched Fletch and that's, oh, which is, I had never seen it before. Nice. Oh, it's so oh good. Oh my God. So I was funny. delighted, but we are so deep into reality television rewatching. It's so sick, Joe. It's like, it's so demented, yeah. but. It's like you're eating pop rocks instead of eating a stick. It's a, it is exactly right. I will say, I know this sounds frivolous. I know this sounds dumb, but Lee had never watched. He loves The Bachelor, which is how I knew I was going to marry him. And he likes reality television. But he had never really watched the kind of reality television that I like to watch, which is anything that that Bravo airs. And so a few months ago, we started watching The Real Housewives of New York from the beginning, which obviously I've seen. We are now in season 11. Every season has about 20 episodes, just to give you a sense of how deep in this we are. His reaction, he is a comedy writer, and he thinks it's the funniest show on TV. And I agree. So a huge recommendation. If you've seen it, if you have not seen it, it's also like, I feel like we've reached the end of all other streaming television. We we watch everything else too. But if you are in need of something that has a lot of content, it really delivers. And, And even if you're someone who has more elevated taste than I, you will like it. I, I really, I firmly believe it. It's like, it's got it all. It's got, it's tragic. It's comic. There's a lot of drinking, which is really fun to watch. There's a lot of arguing. If I watch season one, will I be, I'll get it. Here's the thing. You will get it. It is entertaining. It is a little bit of uh, like off with their heads. Like it's, it's, it's like the people are kind of desperado. There's drama. It definitely feels of a time but it pays off when you stick with it. Like someone, we were, I was extolling the virtues of this rewatch the other day to a friend and they said, do I need to start at the beginning or can I start in the later season when it really starts to cook? And I said, you can start in the later season, but if you really want the full experience to really have, you the know. war and peace. Yes. You know, you really like some of these women have been on the show since the day one, which is like 15 years or something. And their relationships, just like you really see them evolve and there's death and divorce and it's just. And it's real. 
ish, but you can definitely tell when it's not. And you can definitely tell when it is. This is, we're spending way too much time talking about the dumbest shit on earth. But I will tell you, if you're looking for content, watch it. And if you're unhappy with it, you can tell me, but I don't think you will be. That's my recommendation. I'm willing to give it a chance and, you know. Don't hate me if you hate it, but I. Two or three episodes from now, I'm going to come back to you with my review. I'll get as far as I can and maybe I'll go all the way because I'll get into it. It's fascinating. And it's really just, it's delightful. You you clearly see it almost like a sociological uh, documentary. A thousand percent. I feel like Lee has learned a lot about women from this. Oh, well, that's something to, well, you just like, you know, you can explain how, how certain women interact or the psychological warfare, but until you see it play out over 11 seasons, you can't really quite understand it. Right. Yeah. 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 Anyway, speaking of a, of a different kind of drama, I'll yes. segue into something that is, I don't know if it's more or less, I don't know if it's higher brow or lower brow, whatever it is. Our former president, Trump, is in a little bit of- Heard of him. Yes, unfortunately. Is in a little bit of drama of his own. So the Supreme oh, Court We don't know rules, how big a drama he's in. It's, yeah. it's juicy. I would like to see a reality show of this. So mm-hmm. the Supreme Court ruled- that the Manhattan district attorney could have access to his tax returns. And we are all waiting with popcorn to see what comes out they of it. They have this. them now. They have them. I they got read, them. Yeah, got over the wire. So there's a reality show is the forensic accountants mm. who are combing through Trump's tax uh, forms, which are, are very, uh, many, many pages, right? Um, several thousand pages, I think. The fact is... This could be where the real hope lies in that – and, and this, the next question, I can imagine this up the road as we get into this year. If he does come under a lot of legal fire, as he gets tied down and can no longer kind of um, operate as freely and without constraint as he – had in the past, and he's occupied with lawyers and trying to keep himself out of jail. Let's just say this is the circumstance. Does that turn him even, does that make him more popular does, with his base? Does oh. it make him a martyr against these New York attorneys or uh, and investigators or whatever? Does he, or does it distract from his ability to operate as a political voice? So, I mean, question. that's where my, that's my question about what the results of this will be. Does it hurt or help him politically? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, politically, yeah. Politically, I think he's done. I think that the answer is that he's done politically. Like, Oh, you you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. I like that point of view. Well, I could be wrong, obviously. I want you to be right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I, he's going to be 78. I really don't see what the incentive is for him to actually run for office anymore when he could just make money off of the threat of running for office, right? That just seems more in line with with who he is psychologically. And right. for someone who is only motivated by ego and money, the chance to to remain relevant by threatening to run and also cashing in on that threat feels more appealing than like actually having to move back into the White House. Personally, that's right. that's what I think. But 
you know, I know from my reporting people I talk to that this investigation is real, that they are really dotting all of their I's and crossing all their T's and talking to a lot of very relevant people, names that you would all know. Uh, and anyone who's paid attention, they're, they're talking to every character you would imagine they're talking to. And I don't know how this is going to turn up. If I had to guess, I don't think anyone's ending up in jail. I think there could be hefty fines. I think there could be bars and the kind of businesses they're allowed to be involved in or conduct. Um, but, but you know, there, there, are, there could be some real consequences here. And I hope that there are because anyone who breaks the law deserves to have the full book of the law thrown at them. So yeah. I, I think it's fascinating. You also have at the same time, Don Jr. testifying or, or answering questions from the district attorney in, I think it's Virginia or Washington, DC mm-hmm. uh, about the inauguration. And I've reported about this inaugural investigation for two years now and it's serious, you know, whether or not the presidential inaugural committee improperly paid money back to the to the Trump organization. And from my reporting, it seems pretty clear that there was money that was circling back. And and you know, the the pick, as they call it, the presidential inaugural committee, is a nonprofit. And nonprofits right. have a fiduciary responsibility to not overpay, right? And it seems like they were overpaying for rooms and ballrooms at the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. So I would have died to being a fly on the wall of that Mm -hmm. interview with Don Jr. I know that Ivanka Trump sat for the same investigators a few months ago. So it feels very interesting. It feels like we're going to get some answers. I, I honestly hope that justice is served wherever justice can be served, but that we also move on from it. I feel bad for the interrogators in the Don Jr. interview because of just the incredible smell of hair gel and cologne in that room must have been difficult to to breathe. Well, at least it wasn't you. Maybe they did it over Zoom. Um, I want to talk really briefly for a minute about uh, the nude podcast that has Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama. I feel like it was made for you. Well, you know, that's funny because the first time I, it came over the transom, I was looking on Twitter, I made fun of it. Really? Because I thought, yeah, because I said to myself, oh, it's like the, uh, it's like Christmas at Starbucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you have like the two most middle of the road democratic, uh, you know, uh, sort of heroes. That is right. Perfect. I mean, yes. they're, they're like, um, you know, they're sort of like a, a latte in a, Cafe Olay, and you just, it's, you're ordering and you're waiting for your order to come, and it's Barack Obama and Springsteen, and you're totally psyched. Yes. So um, I'm lucky enough to have interviewed Springsteen uh, for my book, Sticky Fingers, and uh, we had malted milkshakes. Oh, wait, Joe, did I tell you my dad loved your book? Joe was nice enough to send my dad his book. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I was going to mention it if you didn't. He is obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with it too. Everyone should read it if you haven't read it, which feels crazy if you haven't read it. But my dad in particular, who's a big music fan and a big fan of yours, uh, just loved it. So everyone pick up a copy. Anyway, go ahead. Continue your humble brag of interviewing Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, my humble brag is read read Sticky Fingers. It's the biography of Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone. And I got to interview Bruce Springsteen. I I mean, you know, I have to brag when I can. We had uh, malted milkshakes together at a diner on the Upper East Side. What kind of milkshakes? I, 
malt. Oh. You know, that was, and uh, they were delicious. You know, they're like black and whites, basically. You know what I mean? They were like black and white. Oh, I know what you mean. And they were delicious. And he was like, you know, himself and that kind of, he's like a, there's a guru quality to him. Mm. You know, it seems like he's saying all the right things all the time. And in some ways I'm suspicious of that. So anyways, I listened to the podcast and it's really great. I, I was, I went in fully skeptical is what I'm saying. And I came out kind of moved and there's a lot of funny parts in it. One of which just to reference back to your husband, learning things, watching the housewives, um, it, he, uh, Obama talks about how after he first met Springsteen and his wife uh, coming away and Michelle is saying, you could really learn something from Bruce. He really has learned a lot about his failings as a man. And he's 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 like been humbled by his, you wow. know, his own. And so you could learn something from him. And so then they ended up becoming friends and it talks about them drinking, getting basically drunk at the White House and playing show tunes around a piano. So you get all these great, funny, yeah, they're great stuff, right? I need to like immediately when we hang up, I'm going to listen to this. Oh, you'll, it's very entertaining. I mean, they're, and they get into their biographies. It's very intimate. And, you know, the thing about Springsteen is he's so, he's so eloquent and cogent and because he's doing it uh, extemporaneously in this podcast, you really trust it. It's not like a speech he's giving on a stage. And you realize this is just how he is. He's like, he can speak in complete paragraphs and it's like a beautiful, eloquent thing, mm. you know? What a nice thing. Did you see the show on Broadway? You know, I didn't, although I, well, I saw it on, you know, Netflix Wherever or wherever it, yeah. aired. I yeah. saw it HBO. and it's phenomenal, especially if you're a Springsteen fan and I grew up. We, we were very Springsteen house growing up. Um, but you know, like he's giving these incredible monologue. The entire thing is yeah. a monologue and it's mm-hmm. straight. And I don't think there's an intermission and it's like, it's very intense. And he's, he's, the writing is so beautiful. It's just him on stage. And like, there's very clearly a teleprompter. You can see the teleprompter and he's reading off of it. I'm sure he is. He had memorized it by the time I saw it. Um, but it's nice to know that he speaks like that. Not just off of a teleprompter, but that there is, that's just who, who he is and how his brain works. Well, I'm a fan. I've seen him 12 times. Whoa. And so I, I don't know. I'm not quite into super fan territory because I, I met people who have seen him 68 times. Or right. Speaking of super fans... I just wanted to tell you a funny story. Please. I've been waiting for this. Joe told me before we started that he was going to end our chat with a funny story. So here we are. Well, I um, occasionally get an email or, or, or two from people that have read my book and they just reach out and they say, hey. And I got an email or it was actually a DM, a direct message on Twitter from a guy named Rick Munoz. Now, I had not heard of him, but he said, I loved your book. I learned a lot from it. And oh, by the by, back in the 70s, he was a teenage superfan, and there had been a phenomenon of superfans back in the 70s, and he had been featured in People magazine because he was obsessed with Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, and Led Zeppelin, among others. And, and at some point, there was a big spread done, and Annie Leibovitz took his picture back Whoa. in the 70s. And so he was the real deal, a true maniac for these artists. And he mentioned idly to me that he had been like yelled at by Jackson Brown for being a little bit too overzealous. And I said, well, tell me more about that. And so he wrote me this letter. Oh, my God. And he, in which he talks about two experiences he had, one with Jackson Brown and one with Bruce Springsteen. And I just want to read you this Please. because it is truly 
something special. I'm so excited. So now he's talking about his uh, Jackson Brown uh, experience, and this is like in the late 70s. He attended all uh, five shows of a, you know, um, Jackson Brown run that he did at the uh, Universal Amphitheater. So he says, it happened during the third or fourth song of the set. I literally had my elbows on the stage. I sat that closely. Earlier that year, during the Running on Empty tour, he played five nights in a row at the Universal Amphitheater, and I had sat in the orchestra pit for each one. And during each of these shows, of course, I cried and cried during all of the sad songs and jumped up and down crazily during the rockers. So then at the Troubadour show, when he realized I was at that show too, he walked over to me, crouched down so that his face was five inches away from mine and hissed, look, knock that shit off. I remember you from the amphitheater, so don't do that here too, or I'll have the security remove you, okay? The entire club, of course, was completely silent while this bizarre scene unfolded. Meanwhile, I gazed into his eyes, trying to avoid having a heart attack, and nodded my head up and down. I was quiet as a mouse for the rest of the show. It was definitely one of the highlights of my concert-going life. Oh, my God. I similarly cried throughout Bruce Springsteen's entire opening night, all three and a half hours of his five-night stand at the L.A. Sports Arena during the 1980 River Tour, including the intermission. Afterward, as I walked out of the arena, two LAPD officers came up to me, I was still crying, and asked if I was okay. I just pointed to my t-shirt in response. The message on the shirt, without Springsteen, life isn't worth living. (laughs) A couple of nights later, I sat near Bruce's parents, Doug and Adele. So I went over and I thanked them for bringing him into our lives. Mrs. Springsteen said, I saw you the other night crying. You shouldn't take my son so seriously. Oh. Uh, Ah, that's a special memory. I kind of want to get him on the podcast. When I read this, I thought, we got to get this guy (laughs) on the podcast. He has, and these stories go on and on. Him, like, you know, uh, basically harassing all each member of Led Zeppelin to get him to sign uh, sign his record. Were you ever a super fan? I was a super fan. I believe that. I back not to that level, not an autograph seeker. I was hugely well as a kid. I was hugely into Kiss. Cool, but every kid kid I know was. It was just a thing that happened. You know, not proud of it. It's just what happened. And uh, but later in the '90s, when I was like into indie rock, again, I'm just reporting facts. I'm not trying to. uh, I was really into Pavement, Pavement, the indie rock band. All of his tracks. now, an interesting thing that happens with uh, becoming a journalist yes. is you get to meet people. You get to meet famous people. You get to meet people that are your ostensible heroes, right? And how do you find that? It, well, it was my first huge lesson in that was meeting Stephen Malcolmus, the guy who was the behind pavement, and being deeply disappointed. And of course I was going to be disappointed. There was no fault of his. It was just that he was just a human being. But he he was fine. He was probably kind of a jerk. But he why would he not be? He's a rock star. So never meet your moment, heroes. Never meet your heroes. And I think, uh, but Rick Munoz could not be turned off uh, by his heroes even telling him to shut up. <laughs> I would have turned into a puddle and probably just cried myself to sleep every single night and never listened to them again. But more yeah. power to him. I love him for yeah. sending you that. I love him. Yeah for doing what he did. And it's just, what a great way to end this episode. Well, I'm glad that we uh, brought it back to something that we can enjoy. Well, we have time for it now. 
That's the whole point. It's That's yet, how we exactly. started. If you have we more super fan stories, send them to Joe. <laughs> Joe would yeah, love to read them. Send me your super fan <laughs> stories, and we're going to, if we, you know, we'll review any highlights from our uh, from the feedback. We any get. really excellent stories? Maybe we'll make this a, a, a semi regular segment because it's really delightful. And now we have the time to focus on on delightful things. So. I love it. Onwards. We have we have so many actually we have a very exciting episode coming up that has to do with sort of a similar topic. I'm yeah, not going to give it away cuz yeah. it's too good. But Joe really knocked something out of the park and I can't wait for you guys to hear it and we'll be right back here next week. Emily Jane Fox, it's been a pleasure. Always. See you next week. Thank you to my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. Thanks to Brett Fuchs and, of course, the folks at Cadence 13 for their great production work. And, of course, to our sponsors as well. Please support them any way you support this podcast. We'll see you right here next week.